this morning's readings from Isaiah chapter 9, uh, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light, sh- light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide that spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and, the name shall, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so throughout our Advent season last week, um, we're, we're looking at these, these four themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. And each week we're taking one of these words and we're, we're looking at what the Bible says about these things. And, and last week, Lonnie was here and, and unpacked some of that for you guys. Um, and this week we're going to really um, focus on the, the word peace. We saw that the, the even, you know, Alan already kind of preached my sermon a wee bit, like Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Shalom come to the world. Um, and the reason we're, we're doing this is because what hope is there except the hope that's in Jesus, right? Really? What are you hoping in if you're not hoping in Jesus? What, there is no real and lasting peace outside of Jesus. What joy is there except the joy that Jesus brings? And the, maybe the most, my favorite one is, what love is there except the love of Jesus? Really? What love that, love that, that, that made him uh, take on flesh and, and as the song says, sleep beneath the stars that he had made. It wasn't, it wasn't Niels that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. So, peace. We're going to look at peace today. Let me pray for us and ask for God's help. And then we'll get stuck into what this means. Father God, thank you for just the freedom to, to meet in public like this. And to um, publicly declare that we love you publicly declare that you are our God and we worship you. Father, we have sinful hearts and we come in this morning uh, weighed down with our own burdens. We come down in, we come in weighed down with our own distractions. Uh, Father, our sinful hearts want to block out what you really have to say to us this morning. So we ask for your help as we open your word, as we delve into it and try to understand what you would have for us today, Lord, please help us. We need your help. We need you every hour. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Um, so when I was a kid, I heard when I was a kid, I heard my dad talk about peace a lot, right? So I grew up in the eighties. Well, the, yeah, the second half of the eighties and nineties. I was born fourteen years before the the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So I grew up in, in the tail end of the troubles. So you might think that he was talking about peace in that Northern Irish sense, like we want peace, but. Let's just say his motives were maybe a little bit more localized than that. 
Generally, when my dad talked about peace, he talked about, I just want a bit of peace and quiet. That's all he said. I just want a bit of peace and quiet. Now, you might be thinking, well, he sounds like a selfish man. I want, I want to frame the context for you. I have four sisters. That's four girl versions of me, right? And, I, and, and I'm the quiet one of the family. Trust me, right? And, and I have to say, now that I have two kids, that's 40% of the amount of children that he had. I kind of on his side a wee bit. Like, I'm like, man, at three o'clock in the morning, this morning, I was like, I just want some peace and quiet. Like, go to sleep. But I wonder, I wonder what you think about when you think of peace, right? Because we, we, we all have kind of this idea of what peace looks like, and, and Alan already touched on this, right? So um, it probably, I'm guessing that when you think of peace, it probably has something to do with the absence of conflict in some shape or form. So even if we think of like three levels of society, so we think of the world or society at large, our relationships, and then within ourselves, even in those three levels, on the world level, right? We, 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 yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, we prayed for peace in Paris. We want world peace. This is, what, this is the general kind of sentiment of, of everyone at this time of year. It's an, an absence of war. But what about in our relationships? We want peace there, right? We want, we want harmony within our marriage. We want, uh, we want to get along with our friends. We don't want conflict and strife. Even within ourselves then, to bring it down way closer to home. We don't want to be conflicted about decisions we have to make or things that are going on in our lives. We, you know, I love it when people just say, you know, I just, I just have a real peace about it. What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. Just, just have a real peace about it. This is what we want. We want a lack of conflict. We, we don't want to be conflicted about things. But in the Bible, the concept of peace is much greater than this. So the Old Testament uses this word, uh, Hebrew word, shalom, which is going to be on the screen, I, I do believe. Last week in East, we learned one Latin word and two Hebrew words, um, but this morning we're just going to learn, sorry, south, yeah, south, yeah. In south, we learned, uh, Freudian slip, in south, we learned one Latin word and two Hebrew words. Today, we're just learning one Hebrew word. So if you've been a Christian a while, uh, you may have heard of this word, shalom. Um, you, if you're from a Jewish background, you'll definitely have heard of this, this word. Now, shalom in its most basic sense means completeness or wholeness. It has this idea of, of, of making something whole again. So in its very basic sense, it can, it can refer to a, a stone that is uncut or in one piece. So we get this concept in Deuteronomy 27. So this is about when God's instructions for when uh, he brings his people across the river Jordan into the promised land. And this is what he says. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, of salem stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So they are to build an altar from these whole stones, from these Salem stones. It's the same word that we get, Jerusalem, the city of peace. So they were literally making peace offerings on a peace altar. Isn't that cool? I love those little details in the Bible. It can literally, refer, Shalom can refer to something that is complex, that has no missing parts. It's whole, Right? This is why the book of Job says, you shall know your tent is at peace. You shall know your tent is at shalom. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. So, so Jacob, or Job's tents were in shalom when he counted all of his sheep 
and none were missing. That's a complex system and nothing's missing. That he has shalom in his, in his tents. He's starting to get the idea. Wholeness, completion. The idea is that we live complex lives. Complex relationships. All these different parts, right? You're trying to juggle 10 million things. And you have shalom when, when all those things are working just as they should be. When there's fulfillment. When there's completion. So, say you're having a fight with someone or you wrong somebody, then your shalom is missing. So, if I betray Thomas, then uh, our, our shalom is, is missing. And so, I would have to work hard to make recompense. So, I'm from Balamina. You can't maybe not tell from my accent, but I am. And so, I'm going to use an example that makes sense to me. So, imagine one of my cows, right? No, we all have cows in Balamina. Trust me. If you've never been... Trust me, we all have cows and sheep, the whole thing. I'll only tell you. So imagine one of my cows gets out and goes in the neighbor's field and wrecks all their crops, eats all their crops. Then my shalom with my neighbor is, is gone. It's missing. Luckily for me, there's an example in the Bible that speaks to this very thing. Exodus chapter 22, verse 5. I think it's on the, on the screen. <laughs> If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose, that's me, and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. He shall, he shall make shalom. He shall bring shalom to that situation. I will bring shalom to my neighbor by paying for what I have stolen, by, by restoring what I have broken. Do you see this idea? In order for there to be shalom, a price has to be paid. In order for shalom, a price has to be paid. But shalom, when it does exist, refers to more than just, it's more than just me making up with my neighbor and us getting along. It's actually about more than that. So I'm called to go the extra mile. And shalom is when me and my neighbor work together for the good of each other. It's not just an absence of conflict. So in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, they were, they were supposed to uh, build shalom with the other nations. They were supposed to lead Israel in shalom. They were not just to not war with the other nations. They were to work for the benefit of the other nations. You see, they were called to be a light for the nations. But what we see in the Old Testament is that this never happened. It rarely happened. Their shalom was missing. Time and time again, the people failed. They rejected God. There was no peace. And things got so bad that eventually the prophet Isaiah says, and this is where we enter into our text this morning, the prophet Isaiah says that, that he's going to send, that God's going to send the Assyrians and the Babylonians. These are two massive empires. You ever see the movie 300? I'm going to come back to that later on as well. Have you ever seen the movie 300? And, and the guys with like the, the earrings and the tattoos and the spears and the, the muscles and all that kind of stuff. That's the kind of people who are coming to take over Jerusalem and, and Israel. And he said, it's because you've rejected God. It's because your shalom with God is missing. Their shalom is going to be taken away. And there was no leader in all of Israel. No human leader could, could do what God needed them to do. Even David, who was the best king that Israel ever had, even he broke shalom. 
He couldn't lead them in peace with their neighbors, let alone peace with God. But what we see in history is that, that God steps in. Love it. Love it when God steps in, don't we? Do we not love it when God steps in? I do. Because generally it means that my mess is about to get cleared up. God steps in. God has a plan, right? God always had a plan. Look at verse 1 in Isaiah chapter 9. Please just keep your Bibles open because we're going to just move through this passage this morning. Look at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's going on here? Her who was in anguish, what does this mean? Well, often in the Bible, the nation of Israel is referred to as a woman, right? So actually often, the nation of Israel is referred to as an adulterous woman because she's always breaking her covenant with God. And so here, God is using this same imagery, her in anguish. You see, they're in anguish because they've rejected God. They're in anguish because they've disobeyed God and they're under God's judgment. Their rebellion has led them into a place where, 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 where there is no peace, where there is anguish, where there's pain and suffering. But why does he say in the former time? Well, that's really simple. The exile hasn't happened yet. The Babylonians and the Assyrians haven't come in yet. But this is God through Isaiah saying, look forward to this time. And he's looking forward to this time. And from that point of view, he's looking back. And he's saying, in that former time. Do you get what I'm saying? So imagine he's been, whoop, transformed to the future. And he's like, oh, back then, in anguish. Okay? But look closely at what he says. He says, there will be no gloom for her. There will be no gloom for her. In other words, her anguish isn't going to last. The gloom isn't forever. God sees his people in the middle of their rebellion, in the middle of their sin, in the middle of all the debauchery that was going on in Jerusalem. In the middle of that, God speaks. In the middle of that, God acts. And he promises redemption. You see, in the middle of our sin, God, God just doesn't leave us to it, does he? God pursues us. Way back in the Garden of Eden, way back in the Garden of Eden, when, when Shalom was originally broken with God, they were in the middle of their rebellion. What did God do? He came after them. He came into the garden and he said, where are you, Adam? I have a plan to put this right. See, that's what God does. He doesn't just leave us to our mess. He intervenes. And here's some great news for us this morning. Even though you might turn your back on God, he will never turn his back on you. I'm going to say that again because I think that if, even if I stopped here, that's just amazing. Even though you might turn your back on God, he will never turn his back on you. Even in the middle of your sin, even in the depths of your rebellion, even if you are consciously saying, God, I don't want you today, he's never going to turn his back on you. This is the message of Christmas, isn't it? This is why we celebrate Advent. God pursuing us in the depths of our rebellion. He pursues us because of his great love. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh and dwells among us, fully God and fully human. A life of, lives a life of being tired and being hungry, having a headache, 
getting sunburned. He lives in human frailty. Not only that, he lives a life where he's rejected, he's abused, he's ridiculed. Why? Because he, lo- because he loves us. Because he loves us. So I've been listening to this um, song recently. Um, uh, maybe, I don't know if you've sung it here. Um, kind of an Advent song by City of Light. And I always think City of Light is like, just like if somebody from Northern Ireland says City of Light. It's not like, anyway, never mind. City of Light. Anyway. But this is what the song says. It says, what love, my God, would bring you down to earth? What king would take a low and lonely birth? Yet to this dark and broken place you came to sleep beneath the stars that you had made. This is the core of our faith, isn't it? That God pursues us. Romans 5 says that this is how God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We don't have to try and make ourselves better because while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. You might think that you're beyond God's forgiveness. I know some of you do because I talk to some of you. You might think, oh, but there's that one thing that I just, there's no way God forgives me for that. Or maybe you think, maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, how could God ever love me? Why did he love me? But that isn't the message of Christmas, is it? That's not the message. That's not what the Bible tells us. Let me tell you this this morning. The message of Advent is that God loves you so much that he took on flesh to live as one of us so that he could die as one of us so that he could forgive the sins of all of us. That's the message of Advent. God pursuing us because he loves us. There will be no more gloom for her. What about verse 2 then if we move on? Wow, all that easy. People are like, oh, for one verse, jeepers, we're going to be here till like 2 o'clock. Maybe. You're under my control now. I'm only joking. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, the people who walk in darkness. Do you ever read these verses and uh, you hear them at carol services and stuff? I've been hearing these verses since I was in school. You hear these verses like, uh, you know, the people who walk in darkness seen a great light. You know, brilliant, you love it. But you don't really consider what it means. Can I just say, the people who walk in darkness are us. We're the people who walk in darkness. Listen to John 13, verses 19 to 20. This is Jesus having a conversation with a holy man, and he, a religious leader, and he says this, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. We're the ones who walk in darkness and you know what? We love it because when we're walking in the darkness, nobody gets to see that sin that we don't want anyone to see. Certainly We'll just hide that away. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve do whenever they sin against God? They hide. I, th- I always think it's funny that they try and hide in the bushes. <laughs> You're hiding from God, mate. Come on. Come up with a better plan. They try and hide because they're ashamed. They don't, they, they don't want people to see their sin. And this is what it means to walk in darkness. And we all walk in darkness because we don't want our sin to be exposed. 
And just like these Israelites of old, we walk in darkness because we reject God. We somehow, we somehow sometimes think that, you know, we read this passage that, the, 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 that it's like we're walking in darkness and it's not really our fault and, and we're trying to find God like this, but we're not. We're happily in the dark. I've been listening to this uh, podcast uh, recently called Ear Hustle. It's really interesting, um, really good. It's, it's made by the inmates of San Quentin Prison in California. Really, really interesting. But in one episode, uh, they talk about how in the old prison, uh, it's still there. They, 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 ha- they, they have a literal dungeon, right? They have this dungeon, just a hole in the ground with, you know, chains on the walls where people get chained up like this. And, and very often, especially back in the day, if you were black or of an ethnic minority, you could just get thrown in there without trial, without cause, unfairly put into this dark dungeon and chained up. And this is kind of what we think of sometimes when we think of us and our sin. Like we've been unfairly chucked in there. And we're trying to find a way out. Oh, I just want to get out of this hole. But the truth is that we're in there because we rejected God. We're in there because we don't want anyone to see our sin. But it's into that rebellion that what does the, what does the verse 2 say? That a light has shined. You see, the light shined in us because God loves us. Even though we rejected God and broke shalom with him, he loves us and shined into that dungeon. We broke the shalom, but you know what God says? You know what? Yes, they rejected me, but I love them so much that I'm going to make this right. I'm going to bring shalom. I'm going to restore this relationship. Verses 3 to 5 describes the peace, the shalom, what will it look like when God does this. The first thing we see in verse 2 is that, or verse 3 is that he, he multiplies the nation. Okay? So what does that mean? What does it mean? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Well, nation and, and increase is a big theme in, Israel, in, in Isaiah, right? The, the nation of Israel were to be a light to the nations. Jesus would come through this nation and people, the people of Israel to be a light to the nations to point them to Jesus, to point them to salvation. This means that for us, it means that no one nation has a claim on Christianity. It means that God has gone, you know what, I'm expanding this nation, I'm multiplying this nation, so it's not just going to be my people, the people of Israel anymore. Now my people are going to be people of all nations. There's no one race that has a claim on Christianity. There's no one political persuasion that has a claim on Christianity. The kingdom of God is is made up of, of people of all nations. This is what it means when God says he will multiply the nation. The people of God will increase in number. They'll be made up of people from every nation on earth. This is what it says in Revelation 7. At the end of all things... And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Christianity isn't a Western thing. It's not a unionist thing either. It's not about green and orange. It's not about red, white, and blue. It's not about the United Kingdom. It's not about United Ireland. The kingdom of God is about people from 
every tribe and every nation. God didn't make a mistake when he made people of different color skins. Let me tell you that. He didn't make a mistake when he made people from all the nations on earth. It's a celebration of who God is and his character. That he brings all these people together, not because of their political persuasions, not because of where they're from, not because of the color of the skin, but because they're all together, like we see in Revelation, worshiping the lamb who was slain. That's what heaven's going to be like. And if you think it's going to be middle-class unionists from Belfast, you're going to be mistaken and you're going to be disappointed. billion Christians in the world today. And you know where the majority of them aren't from? Europe and America. The majority of the the, the church is exploding in South America and Asia and Africa right now. That's where all the world's Christians are. The church is declining here. Don't be fooled to thinking that that we have some monopoly on this because what does the word of God say? That God is multiplying the nation. His people is multiplying. It's going to be beautiful. Everybody's welcome. So God multiplies the nation. What's the second thing we see that this shalom looks like? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God breaks the power of oppression. This is what shalom looks like. This is what the peace of God looks like. When, when Isaiah says here the day of Midian, he's referring to this time in Israel's history when they were being oppressed by Midianites, right? The Midianites. And then this is where we come back to the movie 300. You ever seen the movie 300 where, uh, you know, what do you call the Scottish guy with the abs? Boom. Jared Butler. Jared Butler, he like gets his 300 men and fights them off. Well, Gideon did it first. Gideon had 300 men and through the power of God working in him, he defeated the Midianites and broke the rod of oppression. And this is what God is saying he will do through his Messiah. When he brings shalom, all oppression is going to cease. See, Jesus comes and he's going to break the ultimate oppression. He's going to break the oppression of sin. Every type of oppression in the world, every type of, 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 of slavery, every type of, every type of wrongdoing, every type of, of the weak lording over the, the, or the, the strong lording over the, per, the, the weak, that oppression, it comes from the oppression of sin. And Jesus comes to break the oppression of sin. So right here in this life, we might still face oppression and persecution. And, and actually, some of our friends and, and brothers and sisters in turn are facing persecution and oppression just because they love Jesus. And we might face these things in life, but you know what? The power of sin in your life is broken. Maybe you feel the oppression of sin today. Maybe, you know, maybe you're like me, and it seems to be like... Same old sin... Over and over and over again. Maybe you feel that way. Well, here's the good news. If you're trusting in Jesus, then the power of sin in your life has been broken. You're free from that thing. That thing that you're struggling with and you can't seem to shake off, you're free from that. You see, the dungeon doors have been blown wide open. The dungeon doors have been blown off the hinges. And whenever you fall back into sin, whenever you keep going back to that sin, it's like, I'm going back to my nice cozy dungeon here. 
You have the power in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit working in you to walk out of the dungeon and to leave that sin behind. Whether it's the sin of addiction or anxiety or greed or a plethora of things you might struggle with. In Jesus, that oppression is broken. And one day, one day soon, one day soon, Jesus is going to come again and the evil of oppression will be done away with forever. This is why we sing in O Holy Night at this time of year, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Isn't that an incredible word? Isn't that incredible? So God multiplies the nation. He breaks the chains of oppression. And thirdly, verse five, he turns destruction into construction, destruction into construction. Isaiah has this vision of the future and he sees the time when Isaiah has ended the war, right? Now, I don't in my life ever remember a time when there hasn't been war of some kind. And I'm guessing there's not anybody in this room who does remember that time. So here's a frightening uh, statistic for you. Only 8% of the time since the beginning of recorded history has has the world been warless. 8%. So that means in the last 3,100 years, only 286 of them have been without war. And in that time, over 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. And that's only the ones we know about. That's not talking about the tribes in the Amazon or or, or Africa that 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 have been warring together that we don't know about. We as a species are not very good at peace, let's be honest. But look what God is doing. Warriors' boots and bloody garments are going to be burned. They're going to be turned into fuel. You see, more than just putting an end to the destruction of war, God is turning war into something constructive. The warriors' boots and the cloaks, they're going to be used for fuel for the fire. And fires are used for what? To cook food, to feed people. They're used to make bricks, to build buildings. They're used to drive industry. This is what shalom is. Shalom is not just ending war. It's actually putting something much, much better in its place. It's bringing fulfillment. And we see this idea in Isaiah chapter 2 that it says when, when, when God judges the world that people are going to stop learning the ways of war. And it says that, that in those days, swords are going to be beat into plows. And what's the other one? Spears are going to be turned into to gardening hooks, gardening tools. We go from destroying things to cultivating and growing things. And this is what God is doing. This is what he's doing through this church, through every Christian church. This is what the kingdom of God has looked like. And this is what the world is going to look like when his shalom is restored. See, we are called to live in that shalom now. You know why Jesus tells us to love our enemies? You ever thought about that? Why does he say love your enemies? Oh, he's a really nice guy, but, you know, just nice to love people, I guess. No. It's because the gospel is the message of God loving his enemies. And that's why he kills us. Guys, you better love your enemies because you are in me now, and I love my enemies. I loved you when you were my enemy. So he multiplies the nations multiplies the nations, he breaks oppression, and he turns destruction into construction. But how is he going to do this? How will this shalom be brought about? Verse 6 tells us, right? 
Oh, some of the best words in the whole Bible. Actually, every Sunday when I get up to preach, there's a moment in the sermon I say, these are like the best words in the Bible. <laughs> every Sunday. So here we go again. These are some of the best words in the Bible. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This child is coming into the world. The child, as we see later on in, in verse 7, the child from the line of David, the line of kings, the kings of Israel. You see, the, the, hope, the hope in the Bible isn't based on a, a set of ideals or a set of values. In the Bible, hope is a person. And Isaiah, he looks forward to this time uh, when, when, when the words that, we, that Alan read earlier, Luke chapter 2, are actually fulfilled. The angel comes to the hills just outside of Bethlehem and he visits these shepherds and this is what he says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is who? Christ the Lord. Look what's happened. Isaiah, this is 700 years before that night in Bethlehem. 700 years of waiting and promising and looking forward. 700 years and Isaiah says that this child will be born to you. And look what the angel says, for unto you. You see, the truth is that Jesus came for you. He came for you. Everything Jesus did was to restore your shalom with God. And, and people try to reduce Jesus to, to, and I have friends who do this, that reduce Jesus to just being like a good teacher or he's good like holy man, like he taught peace and all that kind of stuff. And he is all those things, but he's so much more. I want you to, to grasp this truth this morning. God had a singular purpose in coming to earth and that was to save sinners. I'm going to say that again. God the Son had a singular purpose in coming to earth, and that was to save sinners. This is what Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, he's our example. Yes, we live after him, but primarily he's our redeemer, and if he's not our redeemer, then we could never live up to his example. You see, from the beginning, God had this plan to restore life to the way it was meant to be, a world without war and without fighting and without strife and without conflict, without animosity. And in this vision that we have in Isaiah 9, human beings won't have conflict with one another. We'll have peace. But in order for us to have peace with each other, we have to have peace with God because that's what happened. That's why we don't have peace with each other anymore because our shalom with God is broken. And so peace with God is the key to peace on earth. It's the only way we can have peace on earth. The first five verses that we've looked at, they describe um, what this kingdom, what the Savior's kingdom will, be, will look like. But in verses six and seven, he then moves on to, to what the, the Savior himself will be like. What kind, of, what kind of person can do this? What kind of man can, can, what kind of child can be born and do all of this? You see that this child will be born to us and for us, but he doesn't stay that way. There's four names given to Jesus. Our Lord Jesus gets four names here in Isaiah. 
Firstly, he's the wonderful counselor. Now, a counselor is somebody who's able to make wise decisions, right? We, I'm sure we, we're all familiar with that. I'm not talking about Belfast City Council, per se. Sorry if you work in a council. I'm talking about more like maybe a counselor. You might, you know, like someone is a consul for the king or someone who can make wise decisions. But, but what is going on here is that he's not just a wise man. He's a divine wise man. You see, when it says wonderful here, Everywhere else in the Old Testament, when he uses that word, it's talking about God's divinity. It's talking that, that he is God. This child who is born is divinely wise. He's the divine king, a divine ruler who rules in justice and righteousness and wisdom. Secondly, he's mighty God. He is mighty God. Now, sometimes I think that when you hear mighty God, you kind of think of like, you know, you know, mighty God, like superhero kind of guy, like um, who's like like Thor. He's a mighty God. Who saw the new Avengers trailer? Oh yeah, oh baby, I'm very excited about that. Um, but in those movies, Thor, he's he's like a he's like a mighty God hero, right? That's what he is. He's a mighty God hero. And this is what we do. He's, he's like pure and strong and ridiculously good looking, and he's like the kind of person that you want to come and save the day. But Jesus isn't a superhero, regardless of what the song says. This term, mighty God, is a term that God uses to, to refer to himself. So this prophecy right here emphatically and undeniably announces that Jesus, the son that is going to be born, is the almighty God. He's the Lord God. He's Yahweh. He's the one through him and by whom everything that was made was made. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the ancient of days. Here's what we believe in this church about Jesus Christ. There never was a time when he was not, and there never will be a time when he will not be. And if you want a funny story, you can uh, see, look, just look up what St. Nicholas said to someone who argued with him about that. He ended up punching him in the face. So, true story. Santa punched him in the face. Listen, if we reduce Jesus to anything less than, than being the almighty God, then we're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. And that's really, really dangerous territory because we want Jesus to kind of fit into our understanding of what Jesus should be like. But let's be really clear this morning. Jesus Christ is God. Do you believe that? This is why... This is why the incarnation is so amazing because it was God himself who stooped low and took on flesh and humbled himself. And in the words of the, the late Eugene Peterson, moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what kind of God does that? What kind of all-powerful deity does that? God is a humble God. Our God became one of us so that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why Christmas is a celebration of the gospel. See what I did there? Thirdly, so he's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. Everlasting father. Now, I've just spent a long time saying God the son, the son of God. Born as a child. How then is he the everlasting father? Well, what's going on here? He's not talking about the father as in the first person of the Trinity. He's not talking about the Trinity. 
sense. He's talking about in the sense that the kings of Israel were, were, were to be fathers of the nation. They were to be protectors. They were to be providers. They were to be uh, example setters. And, the, and this is what um, this prophecy is saying about this child that will be born. At the time Isaiah was writing this, the king wasn't a very good protector or provider or example setter. In fact, he was the opposite. The king at this time, he was, was Ahaz. And, and Ahaz was so bad that he actually practiced child sacrifice on his own son to worship pagan gods. This is how bad things were. And so the, na- the nation of Israel are crying out for a father that's going to lead them. Do you ever feel like that? Every day I watch the news, I'm like, where are all the leaders? Who's, who's going to lead us? Who's going to lead us in the, in the peace? Who can actually bring shalom? Let me be really clear about this. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. No matter what leader, human leader you trust in, you're always going to be let down. Always. Even, I would actually say, surely we in Northern Ireland know that more than most people. But even the very best leaders, even, even the ones that we go, oh man, he's class. Maybe like an Obama or something, or, or you know, whatever. I, that, I've just betrayed my own political, you know, kind of leanings. But maybe someone like that, you go, man, he is class. But he lets us down in so many ways. There's only one ruler, one leader, one prince, one king who can come and bring peace, and that's Jesus. And this is where we come into his, our, our, his fourth And final title today, he's the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Now maybe you're thinking, hold on a minute, you just said king. And isn't Jesus the king of kings? Wasn't he crucified as the the Yes, but what's happening here in the Hebrew is that the word that's used for prince here is the same word that's used in in, in verse 7 for government. It has to do with ruling with authority. It's someone who has absolute authority. What he says goes. See, we reduce Prince to, to being someone who is, is like a king in training, but that's not what's going on here. Verse 7 tells us that he is the Prince of Peace and there will be no end to his rule and no end to his peace. Who else could bring Shalom except the Prince of Shalom, right? The, the, the ruler of peace. Who else could bring peace to the world and peace between us and God except the one who is peace? So here, 700 years before Jesus is born, God has promised this child that will be born. He'll rule with divine wisdom. He's going to be the unending good father. And his rule would bring peace. But we don't worship the baby Jesus in the manger, do we? I mean, I, honestly, I think that sometimes at Christmas we like to, because that's a pretty safe Jesus to worship, isn't it? He's not really offending anyone. He's just a baby in a manger. But we need to grasp this. The manger is just a sign point in history, signpost in history pointing towards what? Pointing towards the cross. You see, this idea of shalom that we've, we've looked at this morning, remember I said shalom requires a price to be paid. For there to be shalom, uh, recompense has to be made. 
And just like we saw in, in the example with the cow, for, for, for there to be shalom, this price has to be paid, the damage has to be repaired, what was broken has to be restored, and this is what Jesus came to do. Last week in, in South, we, we thought about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and she's been visited by the, the, angel, the archangel Gabriel, and, and he actually, when he comes to, 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 to see her, he quotes this passage in Isaiah, and he tells her that you're a wee baby, that wee baby that's in your womb right now, that baby is going to be the one who's going to bring shalom. And then we think about how, I just, I just can imagine her neighbor, the manger, just caring for her wee baby, like, just like a good mommy. Just looking at him and, and so much promise in that infant, so much hope in that wee baby. And she's like, this is the child that's going to bring shalom to the world. And fast forward 33 years, the same woman, the same woman who knelt at the manger is kneeling at the cross. And, and she's there as a mummy. She loves him. It's a, that's her son. And she's watching him be tortured. And he's dying slowly in front of her. And I don't know what she's thinking about. Is she thinking about where, where is the shalom? Maybe she knows, maybe she knows her theology and she knows that for shalom to be made, a price has to be paid. And she thinks, I wish there was another way. This is what shalom costs. This is the price that had to be paid for peace with God. And Jesus paid it fully, gladly. This is the message of Christmas. Listen to these words and I'm nearly done. Listen to these words from Colossians 1. I almost preached this whole passage, the Colossians passage this morning because it's so good. And I've been thinking about these two verses for, for days now. This is what Paul says to the church in Colossae. For him, all the fullness of, for in Jesus, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. And through him to reconcile to himself, to bring shalom, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making, in Greek it's arene. Making peace by the blood of his cross. It was the blood of his cross that Jesus made shalom with God for you. It was through his sacrifice that you can be reconciled to God, to himself. And we sometimes think that, that God, the Father, is you know, in heaven and he's like sending some kind of lesser person to go and clean up the mess that we've made. But that's not it at all. We've already seen that the one who comes, the baby that comes, is God. This is God dying on a cross so that he could bring you back to himself. So forget the, forget the parties, forget, forget the presents, forget the carol services that, I'm loath to say forget the dinner. These are all good things, but they're absolutely meaningless if we don't grasp this one thing. Christmas is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am done now, but I just want to finish with this. I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and, and hearing that this morning is like so encouraging again. You're just like, yes, Lord. Or maybe you... Maybe you're a Christian that's lost your way. Maybe you don't remember the last time you spoke to Jesus. Or maybe 
You don't know Jesus yet. Maybe this is brand new for you. Either way, I don't want you to leave this building this morning without letting the truth of what I'm about to say sink into your heart. The Prince of Shalom, the God of peace, cares about you. He cares about you. He took on flesh, became one of us, died as one of us, so that he could be near to you. Don't, don't go away unchanged today. God the Son took on flesh and that changes everything. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for what it costs for you to make peace thank you that you paid the price gladly. Thank you, Father, that, that such, was, uh, such was your love for us that you gladly stooped low. You gladly humiliated yourself. You gladly took on flesh. You gladly lived a life of pain and suffering and rejection. And you gladly went to the cross. Thank you that you sacrificed yourself so that we might have peace with you. Lord, we long for the day when you will restore peace uh, in your creation finally and, and fulfill all of these prophecies. And Lord Jesus, we just say, come quickly. We think of wars and we think of suffering. We think of anywhere where there's oppression and slavery and injustice today. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, please don't let us leave this place unchanged this morning. Please let us uh, be impacted by the truth that the Christmas message is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table, help us to meditate and to celebrate what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.